in uh, thinking about this, uh, this great teaching, this great biblical teaching of how we honor God in our bodies. Um, I think a lot actually about a, a surprise, actually might surprise you, but I think about a moment in my life when I, uh, Lauren got pregnant for the third time. So we were going to be having our third child, or so we thought. And I remember it was one of the biggest shocks of my life. I think Joe talked about plot twists the other week. Um, this was the biggest plot twist I think that has ever happened in my life because I remember looking at the ultrasound and um, the doctor saying, um, oh, I think I see two. And I said, what? <laughs> and it dawned on me that she meant we were, she said, yes, you're going to have twins. And I just like, I, I, I was, I just like yelled in joy and then in fear. And <laughs> it was a huge plot twist that we were going to have twins. This one's a boy and a girl. And I think about this actually when I read Genesis, the book of Genesis, when God forms uh, male and female, because you'll remember how, you know, God creates everything, light and dark, sun and stars, land and water, all the animals on the earth, above the earth, and then comes to the part where God creates human beings, his children, and there's a twist. There's a twist. Genesis 1.27, you don't have it in your bulletin right now. Um, Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Ah, so there's the twist. Halfway through this verse, turns out when it comes time for God to create the one who is to bear his image uniquely in the world, he doesn't create one person, he creates two. The special image of God, it turns out, is not a single isolated individual, but it's actually a pair. Um, a pair that is different, but equal, uh, distinct, but united, Male and female, made for God and for each other and for new life. But before I go on, why are we talking about this? Let me address why we're talking about this. Why are we even, you know, having a sermon series called Glorifying God in Our Bodies? Why are we talking about uh, sex and sexuality? By the way, this sermon is completely G-rated. Um, just so you know, we will be referring to the existence of sex, but not going into any kind of detail. Um, but why are we talking about this in the, in the first place? Well, the, the answer is that everybody is talking about this right now in our time and place. So uh, the church is bound to talk about it as well. Of course, Jesus and the Lord God who actually created our bodies has something to say about how we use them and what we do with them. And what I just want to say from the get-go is that actually the, the time that we're living in and a lot of the voices that are revising a lot of what we think we know about male and female and about marriage, it's actually a good thing that we live, we're living through the time that we're living in. What do I mean? Sometimes people in a particular time, in a particular place, something will happen to cause them to step back from something that they've always been told and say, is, this, is everything we've been told really true? And this is, I just want to start by saying, this actually isn't a bad thing. This is a good thing. Even when something that we as Christians are, have taken for granted is challenged, 
it actually, I think it comes with an opportunity to actually step back and to look at that thing and to see what it's really all about in the first place. We actually get to do that through the Holy Scriptures. That's the, the real, um, that's the amazing thing about what God has given to us in the Bible is his word written is that when uh, culture changes or things start to get confusing, we don't actually have to feel uh, afraid or worried or, or concerned because what we actually get to do is just take a minute to step back and look at what the Lord says. It can be a profoundly clarifying and actually um, peace-bringing moment. That's how I feel about the, the times that we're living in. When we do this, we actually also get to take a fresh look at our lives. Maybe the habits that we've slipped into, maybe some ideas that we've adopted, and we're actually given the opportunity to bring them as well into, the, into line with the reality of how God has created us and how he has joined us together. I think, as I said at the top of this series, first of all, this teaching is for absolutely everyone. There's no human being that God has created that is, that is somehow counted out of, how, of the, the, the biblical teaching on how we honor God in our bodies. We all have bodies, therefore, we're all bound to honor him in some way. So it's for absolutely everyone. No, no one is excluded or counted out from this in any way. Um, second, for just, but first of all, just to, to preface with some, some ground rules. Um, one of the things is this, I'm actually not going to be able to answer every, um, every burning question that a lot of this stuff is going to bring up from the pulpit. That's why I've actually take set aside a couple of our Wednesday nights our family nights that happen on the first and third of every month. And our next one is coming up this Wednesday. Um, I've actually expanded this a bit into Wednesdays where we can actually get into a little bit more detail. So if you find yourself having this, this teaching actually um, prompting questions, which I think it will, I encourage you to come on Wednesdays and failing that, come and, and talk to me in my office. Um, this is the, the whole vision of, of teaching and catechesis in the church. It's not just from the pulpit. It's, there's, there's, a, there, there's, a, there's a dot, dot, dot to that. There's a to be continued. There always is, especially with me, because I love, I love uh, gathering with you. I love meeting with you. Because what the Bible talks about here is going to actually affect each and every one of us in very intimate places in our lives. This is the other kind of disclaimer I want to put on this series. It's going to uh, speak into our, our very lives that, that, that we've actually lived. You know, maybe, maybe our pasts, maybe our prospects for the future, uh, choices we've made, things we've not really had any choices in but have just happened to us painful and very private places in our lives. So if you're hearing this teaching and you're hearing from the Lord, you're hearing this teaching from the Lord and you're thinking, wait, he's talking about me. Then first of all, good, you're hearing him right. And as I said, also at the beginning of the series, there's actually not a single person that this teaching is not going to affect. And there's not a single person, including myself, that this teaching is not going to say, hey, we've fallen short in some ways. And it's time to repent and return to the Lord. So you're hearing him right if that's how you feel. Uh, like I said, all of us have bodies and there's not a single one of us that this teaching isn't going to affect. The next thing you'll be thinking probably toward the end is, man, I've not lived up to this in some way or another. What do I do? You know, does, does Jesus accept me? Does, does he love me? And I just want you to hear this from the beginning of this series, that no matter what place in life you are now, that God takes you as you are 
right now, and he wants to walk forward with you. He's redeemed you by the blood of his son. He's brought you into union with him in his body. It doesn't matter how messy our lives become. Because remember, I talked about this before. Jesus is like Marie Kondo, right? He loves mess. He loves it. All of it is an opportunity to show off his love. It's an invitation to take his hand and to walk forward with him into greater and greater union with him. So how do we glorify God in our bodies? Again, two ways, marriage and celibacy. Each one requires its own separate teaching because they are equally dignified. But we're going to be talking about marriage today. And we're going to begin where Jesus begins, all the way in the beginning in Genesis 2. See, because the beginning of our gospel, um, our, our, our teaching is going to be a bit of a kind of like a Russian doll, you know, like a, t- uh, a scripture inside of a scripture inside of a scripture. And the reason is because the Pharisees go and ask Jesus and they, they, they ask him a question about marriage. They want, about, they want to know about divorce when it's okay. Today, we want to know about a whole lot of other things besides that. But the point is that they, Jesus responds not just by answering the one issue, but by going all the way back to the beginning. He quotes Genesis 1, and then he quotes Genesis 2. He goes all the way back to the creation of men and women, and we shouldn't be surprised by this because he was there when that happened. It was by his own wisdom and design that we were created as we are. So we're hearing from the very source about who we are. So I want to read Genesis 2, um, 18 to 24 again. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every birds of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the scripture that Jesus is quoting, both quoting and also approving. And what this is, what Genesis 2 is, is actually sort of a zoomed in version of Genesis 1.27. God created the male and female, what I quoted at the beginning of the sermon. Um, This is actually a zoomed in account of how we were formed. Um, But like the Gospels, when we look at Genesis... Genesis doesn't just want to tell you what happened. It also tells you, wants to tell you what it means that this happened. So looking closely, the first thing that we learn is why, is why are human beings created in the first place? This is where we actually have to start. And we see in Genesis 1 that they were meant to be the image of God. The image of God. That means Someone or creatures that especially reflect how God is, uh, his, his character, to be like God in a special way. One of the things we really take away from Genesis is that as human beings, we are not just animals. We were made special. The second, so it is not good for man to be alone. 
first of all, this does not mean that Adam is lonely, okay? So now we're getting into the creation of, of woman specifically. And the kind of precipitating event is that God says, it is not good for man to be alone. So, so what does that mean exactly? It doesn't mean that Adam's lonely. He's there with his creator. He's enjoying the presence of God. It's impossible to be lonely when that's the case. What it means is that the picture isn't right. So God, when he creates, is a bit like a painter. You know, when a painter will kind of step back from something and whatever he's rendering and, or, and be like, and like, no, that's not right. I need to add something. And this is what God does with humankind. Because the image of God, it turns out, is not an individual, but it's a pair. It's two. It is two people that are capable together of community and love. And again, this shouldn't surprise us at all because God, it turns out, is also a community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one, but also three, also a community together. And the church has always emphasized that the Trinity isn't just this kind of fact about who God is. It shows actually that God in himself is love. Read the Gospel of John to see how the Son and the Father feel about each other and how the Holy Spirit sort of seals that love. So to reflect him, God does not create a single person, an individual. God creates a community. The next thing is that God creates woman in a different way than he creates man. And this is actually really significant as well. Because if you remember, God creates man from the ground, right? He breathes new life into the ground and he takes the man out of the earth. But woman actually comes from man. And this is incredibly important. It's important because it means that she is fundamentally human. She's not like another sort of species or another creature in the world. There are other kinds of ancient creation myths and stuff that do talk about woman this way, like man is sort of made from the moon and woman made from the earth, and they're these kind of like yin and yang sort of elemental forces together. But that's not how Genesis describes it. Genesis tells us that actually woman comes from man. Therefore, she's fundamentally human from the very beginning. She may be different, but she's still human. And second, she's formed from Adam's rib. What the heck does that mean? It's incredibly weird detail, right? What does it mean? I mean, it's, the, it's launched like a thousand jokes, you know, like, oh, that's where the pain in my side comes from and stuff like that. But that's not the point. The point is, the point is that woman is taken from the side of the man, a deeply first of all, a deeply intimate part of him, but also his side. She's not taken from his head. She's not taken from his foot. She's taken directly from his side, meaning that she's fundamentally equal to the man. She's human. She's equal. She's his match. But it's also clear that she's not the same. Equal, human, but also not the same. And that's when the man responds with these words. He says, the man says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. See, the point is that man and woman, they are not the same, but they're equal in dignity and they are unified. 
Adam speaks about Eve as closely as he speaks about his, enti- his very body. Indeed, it was from his very body that she came. And now this especially is the image of God. It is a unity in distinction. I want you to carry that phrase with you, a unity in distinction. Like the Trinity, a communion of love across distinct persons. This is why, by the way, our, our very bodies just how they are made biologically, they are different. But they're different in a specific way. They're different, but they are made for each other. And when male and female bodies come together, new life is the result. This is why in Genesis 1, you see God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. What it means is that we actually participate with God in his creation. He creates, we procreate. So all of this is to say that male and female are not preferences. They're not identities that we may or may not ascribe to. Our bodies are, in a fundamental way, our bodies are us. They define who we are and they define who we are for. All of the passages in the Bible that define um, same sexual behavior as sin, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans 2, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Corinthians 6, all of these come out of this Genesis background. That that's not the image of God. It is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for woman to be alone. Sex and sexuality is to be carried out as that unity and distinction. Man and woman, the two becoming one flesh across difference. That's the sort of union that God has created to bring forth new life. Now, just to sidebar, Jesus loves those of us, those of us who struggle with you know, feelings of same-sex attraction, attraction for the same sex. Jesus loves those who f- feel discomfort in, in their own bodies. The reality is that God's creation is fallen and we live in a fallen world corrupted by sin and it, it affects things in various ways. And the church has a sacred responsibility to guide people through these feelings of confusion and to help them to see and understand and take their place within the family of God, whether they're called to marriage with the opposite sex or to a, a life uh, lived, a, a, li- a life of lifelong celibacy. This is also, this, again, I'm going to have to push that off to next week because this is, it's, it's a, a way of life that Jesus has a lot to say about. The church has a lot to say about it and it deserves its own sermon. So please, uh, uh, to be continued on that one. But when we, we always have to begin from the beautiful truth of how male and female reflect the image of God. That's where we begin when we start thinking about how is it that we honor God with our bodies. So that's the ideal. But because we're human, it turns out that difference does not always equal harmony. Again, in a fallen world, it actually ends up, remember, Satan is always taking something good and he's twisting it to bad ends. So um, in a fallen world, it's actually precisely because men and women are different 
that we often run into problems, right? And that's where the question that the Pharisees are asking Jesus is coming from. Now, the Pharisees asked Jesus a question about divorce, saying, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason? This is the question. Because see, in their minds, that's you know, shaped by the Mosaic law, that has provision for sending certificates of divorce. Now, it becomes important that divorce is never recommended. It's never explicitly allowed. But what we get in Deuteronomy is, um, some, if, is you know, when people do it, here's how to do it in the most humane way possible. But the Pharisees are asking him a question saying, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason? So in their, in their mind, this is perfectly fine. And they're just wanting to know how easily and how expediently they can get it done. But Jesus starts there and actually gives a new teaching that is actually against the very idea of divorce because he says, if God has joined two people together, then human beings cannot separate that. Only in very limited circumstances is it appropriate to separate a married couple. Why is this? And this starts to get into not just what male and female mean, but what the union between male and female means. We've talked about what does male and female mean, but what, under what circumstances and in what, in what situation are men and women called to come together? How do we honor God in our bodies? And it's through marriage. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 gives us insight into why this is. So we all know marriage is about love. But what is the sort of love that we are talking about? What kind of love are men and women called to show each other in marriage? And Ephesians 5 is entirely about that. And I want to start just by zeroing in on one verse here. This is verse 22 and 25. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, and husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What this means is that marital love is the same kind of love between Christ and his church. Love means a lot of different things nowadays. It can mean just kind of fond companionship. It can mean sexual attraction. Um, it, can, it can mean just um, positive uh, feelings. But what Paul is telling us specifically is that the way that Christ loves you, that's the love that is also enjoyed in marriage. The way Christ treats you that is how you must treat your wife. The, hus the love that husbands must show their wives is the love that Jesus has for us, his church. And the love that wives show to their husbands is the love that the church has for Christ. And from either direction, from both directions, it is sacrificial. It is sacrificial. It's not easy. It's the love that motivated Jesus to go to the cross, enduring great suffering for our sake, because he loved us, for God so loved the world. How did God love the world? What kind of love are we talking about? The kind of love that propelled the Lord to the cross for our sake. That is the love that we are called to in marriage. This, by the way, doesn't mean that marriages can't be happy. They can be. Uh, it also means that marriages can run into places where um, happiness becomes very difficult. But here is where we can start to see what sort of love Jesus is talking about in marriage. 
You can start to see, by the way, why uh, Jesus starts talking like this in Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, that's the law. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What Jesus is saying is that, you know, the, the, the faithfulness, the faithful love, that covenant of marriage, it's not just, you know, maintaining the bare minimum. It's not just maintaining the, you know, legal status of remaining marriage. It means absolute fidelity from our very hearts, faithfulness. This, by the way, is why the church teaches that pornography is absolutely opposed to the kind of love Christ has in mind. It means absolute fidelity, forsaking all others, including people you might see on a screen. It is about our heart and the place where that love comes from. Now, sidebar, Jesus cares about people whose marriages have fallen apart. Jesus cares and loves people for whom that's the case. It can be confusing, and the church has a sacred responsibility to guide people through those tragedies and help them discern the right course. The church's God, job, remember the church also is projecting this, this love because when it happens, often it just, it, we often just don't know which way is up. So much confusion, so much pain, often happening so quickly. The church has a sacred responsibility to be able to accompany and guide people through what's the right thing to do in this circumstance. But in our understanding of marriage, our understanding where we begin with what marriage truly is, we must always begin with the truth that marriage is a lifelong and indissoluble union. Therefore, for followers of Jesus, there is no provision for separating what God has joined together. So why is it here that Jesus is so uncompromising when it comes to love? You know, do you see it now? It's like his, marriage is like this. It's like his miracles. Remember what, what are Jesus's miracles? They're not just magic tricks. They're signs. Exactly. They're signs. He wants our unions in marriage to be that sign to the world of the sort of covenant union that all human beings may enjoy with him. If our male and female bodies taken together are the image of God, then the covenant of marriage is the image of the new covenant of eternal love between Christ and his church. This is when the Pharisees push back and they push back in a really important way that's going to be really important for us and how we understand what is uh, appropriate and what is inappropriate for Christians in marriage in a new century that is questioning all sorts of things. Jesus leaves us a really important nugget of wisdom that I guarantee you is going to carry you through all of the uh, you know, debates, discussions, confusions that, that you're going to come up against. Because the Pharisees say, wait, if what you're saying is true, then why does the law give provisions for issuing certificates of divorce? And Jesus basically says this. He says, sure, the law tolerated this. It was like legal. But then he says this sentence, and take, I want you to take it with you. It was not so from the beginning. It was not so from the beginning. And in our time as well, 
the law has made a lot of practices and a lot of different kinds of marriage legal. And it brings up a lot of questions about what is allowed for the church. But the thing that is always going to take us through it is this. Was this true from the beginning? See, Christians, we never move forward until we have looked back at the beginning. I think you could actually even say that the way that Christians move forward is by looking back to the original ideal Because we know that through the grace of Jesus Christ, we are actually empowered to live out that ideal through whatever the world throws at us. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it is like that Joni Mitchell song. Um, Yeah. Think way back, please. Um, It was, it's like the Joni Mitchell song. We have got to get ourselves back to the garden, right? Even in the heart of the sixties that started all of this, there's this awareness we have got to get ourselves back to the garden. Jesus' teaching on marriage is what takes us back. It is what brings us back. And this doesn't mean that our lives here on earth look perfectly, you know, shiny and, you know, life magazine couple on the front. It is not what that means. Again, we live in a fallen world and stuff happens. And we are called, as Christ was called, to live into and through the mess. That's what the church is here for. We're here to walk through it together. That's what we do. And the Lord never abandons those who turn to him in faith. In any way, there's no circumstance that our life has come into that he doesn't say, I'm going to take this life and I'm going to forge it into looking like me. He does that in each one of our circumstances. And each one of our circumstances is going to be different. That's why the discernment and the help of the church and a pastor is so, so important. I highly recommend it. Not just because it's my job but it is my job. So please come talk to me. <laughs> and by the time he's done, this is actually why I stopped the gospel passage here. It's, a, it's an odd place. And I realize we're running a little long. I apologize. By the time he's done, the disciples are so astonished at this teaching that they actually say, Whew, maybe it's better to just not even get married at all. In other words, Jesus' opinion is so, of of marriage, the calling to it is so high that the disciples say, you know, maybe it's just better to just not even get involved in this thing uh, to begin with. The stakes are just too high, right? Who could be up for this? Sacrificial, lifelong union. And for someone who is married, let me tell you, nobody's really up to it. (laughs) Not really. I think all of you who are, are married or have been married will, will say the same. All of us have fallen short of this teaching in some way. But the reality is this, that marriage also comes with grace, right? Remember what God has joined together? It comes with a grace given by God. Marriage isn't just a, a, a human contract that we make. That might be the surface level particulars of how we get into it, but that's not really what it is. Remember that it is actually God who is the one who joins us together. Our marriages are not just what we make of it. Marriage, it turns out, is a kind of evangelism. And remember that, remember when Jesus uh, talks to his disciples about evangelism and he tells them, don't worry about what you're going to say. When the moment comes, the spirit is going to give you the grace that you need to say it. 
God never asks us to witness to the world without supplying us the grace that we need to do it. He's faithful. He gives us the grace to love our spouses with the same love that he loves us. He gives us the grace to go through even difficulty, pain, and mess, holding Jesus Christ as our true north, holding what it was in the beginning in our hearts and living that out in our lives. So my prayer for us in this new century is that the marriages that we forge as a church are going to be a witness to the world of what love truly is, a subject that everyone is so deeply confused about. Absolutely faithful, completely self-giving, with the power to unite across difference and bring forth new life. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise that you have called each one of us out as your children. And Lord, that the, the, the circumstances of our lives are no mystery to you. And Lord, we praise you, Father, that you've brought us into a time of, of real confusion, a time in many ways of, of, of real pain where people have, where we have, as a people, as a, as a culture, started to lose track of what your original idea, ideal is. Lord, I give you thanks and praise that you've brought us, this church, into this time because it is an opportunity for us to reconnect with what your ideal was in the garden. And Lord, I just pray that you would um, bless every member of this congregation, that you'd be near to them and where their lives are at. Lord, be with, uh, with the marriages that are yet to be formed. Lord, with the young people here, I pray, Lord, that you would begin to build in them even now what the meaning of love and fidelity even is. Lord, we give you thanks and praise that you've called us into this church, which is a community of love that is for and absolutely everyone, all of your creatures, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that everything that you have designed us to be is good news for all. In Jesus' name, amen.